You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, February 28th, 2022. I'm Maggie Lake. We begin another week with Russia continuing its offensive against Ukraine and the global community ratcheting up the sanctions. Here to help us make sense of the latest developments and their impact on the markets, Jacob Shapiro, Director of Geopolitical Analysis at Cognitive Investments and Harry Melandri, Advisor at MI2 Partners. Gentlemen, great to have both of you with us today. Uh, Jacob, let's start with you. Both sides met for talks today, the Ukrainians and Russians, but at this hour, um, it appears the fighting is intensifying. Uh, More countries and companies have joined the sanctions, leaving Russia looking increasingly isolated in the global economy. There's so much going on, so many different threads here. Give us your assessment of where things stand. What are you watching right now? Yeah, well, so there's the old Lenin quote that I feel like has been making the rounds. There are decades where nothing happens, and then there are you know, weeks where decades happen. And it's felt like a decade just the last couple of days. Um, I'm watching two things. I'm watching a sort of a more of a short-term tactical thing and one bigger long-term thing. The short-term tactical thing, you hit the nail on the head. Are these negotiations real? Is it propaganda both for the Russians and the Ukrainians to say that they tried before they amp up again? I'm personally of the opinion that I think the Russians are actually gearing up to hit Ukraine really, really hard. They've had a rough couple of days in the operation, but their logistics supply chains are moving forward. They're gaining more air superiority. I'm, I'm really worried that we're about to see the worst of this conflict, that this has all just kind of been the prelude. The bigger picture thing, though, and I can't overstate this enough, is Germany has woken up. Uh, Germany, you know, is is talking about not being dependent on on Russia for energy security anymore. It's talking about building LNG ter- terminals, and it's throwing a billion euros um, at, at the German military. So for the first time since 1945, we're talking about Germany militarizing. And if this is Putin's legacy, Putin's legacy is that he's the Russian leader who sort of made um, for for Germany. Uh, Russia, this this target for the first time since 1945. What a colossal miscalculation on his part. So, on the short term, what is Russia going to do? Is are these negotiations really going to push forward? And then, sort of on the bigger picture, Germany's back and what that means for Europe and the world. Yeah, uh, both of those. So much, so much to unpack there. And you know, when you're talking about a remilitarized Germany, I mean, there's just. Uh, so much to discuss. But Harry, uh, what are you watching from a market perspective? I get the feeling that there's a lot going on or a lot of conversations and potential risk building up behind the scenes um, because it's hard to react in real time to everything we're seeing, especially because so much of it is unprecedented. Um, what, what, what are you watching from a market perspective and what part of the market are you watching? So all the action for me, as a macro trader, is in short-rate contracts, in the Euribo contracts and the Eurodollar contracts, which are estimates of the likely time that central banks are going to hike and how much they're going to hike. And we had an awful lot price before because rates were, well, zero, right, everywhere, negative in the Eurozone. And we were anticipating some response to inflation. Well, you know, like just like in the 70s, so to speak, and we can discuss you know, why the 70s matter for this, um, now may not be the ideal time to hike rates. 
There may be really good reasons why we have to delay those schedule hikes, and particular for the Eurozone and Germany, uh, because we've they've imposed meaningful sanctions and they've taken meaningful steps, which they're which you know are unfriendly to Russia when they had been trying to stay out of this. Why the hell are the Russians still supplying them with gas? I, it could be because they have a logistical problem switching the gas off and it degrades the, the wells. But my suspicion is they have some capacity to vary the amount of gas ahead to Central Europe, to, to Europe, Western Europe. And if that's true, uh, it will result in, you know, the maximum loss could be about 20% of energy, Europe's energy requirement just in gas and another 20% in oil. The oil product is fungible and can go elsewhere. The gas is not and will either get locked in or moved into storage in, in Russia. And that, you know, if you don't have enough gas, you're not going to have enough electricity. The factory, people can turn down their thermostat. 20% is a big number to offset. Fact, it will have hit industrial output. It will hit some of the more energy-intensive businesses. And it, I, eventually, it will hit the DAX hard. Okay, so so there's a lot in there. Jacob, and I know you and Harry were talking um, a little bit right before we got on air, we were we were trying to resist diving into the show before we were live because there's just so much to talk about. But weigh in on that, um, the gas part. And then, Harry, I'm going to return to you with the connection with rates and the DAX. But how important is this? Because it does seem odd to so many people listening, like, OK, we've got this you know, noose of sanctions really and in a really globally coordinated way. I mean, we're seeing countries either move off neutrality like Switzerland or or join in sanctions like Singapore, South Korea that don't don't always get involved here. I mean, you've got so many countries now joining, banding together. And then you hear this carve out for oil and gas. And it just seems odd. Um, it, you know, talk to us about that. And, and what do you think about what Harry just said? I mean, is there is there should we think about gas and oil differently? And how important is that? I think the first thing is that the Russians thought this was going to be quicker than it has been. So I think they had an initial plan and they thought they were going to get to Kiev and they were going to depose Zelensky and everything was going to be fine. So I think in some sense, they don't know what to do. They thought that they were already going to be in Kiev right now and that it would all be a fait accompli and that there wouldn't be time for Europe and the United States to get these videos of the Ukrainian defenders on the ground and all of us watching them and then want these harsher sanctions. So I think in some level, what you're seeing right now is the Kremlin is having to stop, pause, and say, do we want to save face? Do we want to negotiate with these guys and try and pull back? If not, and if we're really going to double down on the war, what do we do with natural gas and oil? Because we didn't think it was going to get to this point in the first place. I think the second point here is that ultimately, when it comes to these things, we think that the provider has all the leverage. Sometimes it's really the customer. And for the Russians, I think they still want to de-escalate this. I think they still have in their minds that there is some path to where they can deal with Europe on some fundamental basis. So the moment they shut off the gas, they're the ones that are basically saying the whole thing is over. If they can keep it open, and if they can keep that propaganda message saying, no, we're meeting with them in Belarus, we want negotiations, we're just trying to get rid of these Nazis in Ukraine. That's that's not what I think, but that's what they're saying. That's the message they're trying to say. Mm. So if you get the Russians suddenly cutting off the natural gas, the, the information war, which they're already losing, they look that much worse. So that's my best explanation, but I, I really do think Moscow is scratching its head because it doesn't have a lot of good options left because of their under underperformance on the battlefield. Right. And Harry, your point is, um, what's the point of selling the gas if they can't do anything with the money? Because now they're cut off from the dollar system. Well, you know, there are two uh, interesting observations to make about this. One of these is if you sanction a central bank and you sanction enough of banks and block them out of SWIFT, 
They can't do anything with the money. Exactly that. But there is another point. Surgut, which is one of the bigger Russian oil companies, held an auction for two cargoes of oil. Nobody bid. You can't bid because if you send the cash on, a cash up front, you don't know if the Russians will deliver the oil. If you send the oil up front, you don't know if they could actually pay the cash. Because you've cut, up, cut them off from SWIFT, some of that energy isn't going to go to the West anyway. It could only go to China. So we, this is really a question more for Jacob than from, for me. But I can't help but link the negotiation through the Iran to this current situation. And I'm assuming that the relationship with Iran will be improved uh, in the near future. That will make it possible for Iranian cargoes that currently head to China to get redirected, or at least more Middle Eastern cargoes to go. But the counter-argument to that is it will take six months at least before that situation makes any meaningful debt. So one of the things I'm petrified of is that there is some significant interruption both to uh, the flow of energy, but also, you know, it's a corollary to the interruption to cash flows. Um, and if that happens, we can see oil at 150, which, you know, who wants that apart from Vladimir Putin? So, Jacob, what do you think about the Iran thing? Well, I, I can guarantee you Putin doesn't want oil at 150 this way. He would like to be able to profit off of it if you sell it on the market. But this is not where he, this is not the scenario where he wants it. Um, look, I've actually been saying that the Iran-U.S. deal is going to happen for the last eight months. And this really just pushes it forward. If you believe the Iranians, and you know you probably shouldn't believe anything the Iranians say, they say they can pump an extra 2 million barrels per day as soon as the, the ink is on the agreement. So they're talking, and I think they're playing that up, obviously, because they feel like they have leverage now, and now they can ask for all these concessions. But I think you're absolutely, absolutely right about oil. There's an escape valve there. Um, to your point, I mean, natural gas is the one to be concerned about, because that is not something that you can just load on a ship easily and decide to make up for it. Um, you've got uh, you've got American shale oil producers too. There are ways to accommodate that that lack of Russian oil on the market. The natural gas situation, because Europe is dependent on them for forty percent, I mean that's the situation where it's really hard to read, and where if you get Russia shutting off natural gas, um, you know suddenly. So at that point, why should Europe then not be arming the Ukrainians directly with even worse weapons? And then you get this thing that spirals out of control. So it's it's really a staring contest, and it's about who wants to take steps to de-escalate or whether we're going to keep going around in circles. And then I, I would actually throw this at you too, Harry, because besides the energy, one thing I'm really worried about is that you know, Ukraine and Russia are two of the biggest agricultural exporters in the world, especially for grains, and Ukraine. I mean, we've got about four weeks here until Ukrainian farmers are supposed to be planting. So if this war goes on for another four or five weeks, I mean, forget about the food price spikes we've already seen. You could see barley and corn and sunflower seeds, which Ukraine is sure. the largest exporter of in the world. You could see those go through the roof, too, because now you're not, you're not talking just about a, a panic in the market, but you're talking about fundamental short supply. So I wonder from you, from a food perspective, if, if you're also feeling those concerns or if it's just related to energy. Yeah, you're definitely seeing uh, squeezy markets in the grains. And you, you, from I've read reports that American farmers are switching out of wheat and into soy uh, to for new plantings because uh, there's a real a global shortage of fertilizer. And why is there a global shortage of fertilizer? Well, because of natural gas. It's the feedstock for fertilizer production. Gets worse though because 
Belarus and Russia have some of the biggest deposits of uh, of uh, potassium and uh, God, I've, I've got brain brain power. But in Urukali and uh, Belarusukali, they have two of the biggest alkali producers of fertilizer things. So there's also that right now the Ukrainian army has sixty thousand soldiers parked outside of Donbass that were meant to be launching an offensive against Donbass. There, it, there's a, looks terribly as if the Russian push from the south and north is going to kettle them into that area. That area happens to be one of the most fertile pieces of Ukrainian land um, for wheat production. It's, so this is kind of for grains of commodities. This is like a storm of everything that could possibly go wrong going wrong. I saw something that I never, I was really shocked to see. You had visits from the Argentinian and the Brazilian uh, presidents recently. Both of them requested and received quotas for fertilize, Russian fertilizer supplies. And Jair uh, Bolsonaro, who I wouldn't have thought was a Putin-friendly kind of guy, um, actually said something quite supportive just before the war kicked off. But still, uh, something relatively supportive, which to my mind tells me how much they need the fertilizer. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Harry, I think this this calls to question, you know, what what are the risks that are not priced in the market? You just said you're worried about the DAX. I mean, given given the natural gas situation, given the food situation, um, you know, what what looks vulnerable? What are you concerned about and what kind of downside could we see? So, first of all, every rate hike we've priced in, particularly in the Eurozone, maybe we shouldn't have priced all those rate hikes in, um, point number one. Point number two, um, if you need energy for your, your activity and energy prices go sky high, how much money are you going to make and what valuation should your company be on? And then, uh, right now, the there's every reason. I don't know if you've, you guys read Zoltan Poznar's musings on on financial flows and the dollar liquidity thing. Zoltan's like the guru in, in this subject. Um, he was concerned that you're going to have some kind of uh, if you if you take out a big surplus dollar receiver like Russia, um, everyone who borrowed who lent sorry borrowed money from Russia and passed it on to third parties has now got to scramble to replace that liquidity. So. Yeah. There's going to be some stresses in funding markets. Now, you know, we have a Fed. Those Fed officials, I would imagine, have been working very late recently, gaming this out. And right now, they're probably doing their best to, to fill those liquidity holes um, that the Russians are putting in place. But uh, it does worry me that we may have payments problems at some point. And then finally, um, you know, it's not impossible to see cyber attacks. Um, if if the one thing like my wife asked me, is there anything you know I should be doing? I said, go to Costco, get on with it. <laughs> Let's get the shopping done before the credit cards fail, just in case. So yeah. that would uh, be that would be an escalation, though, Jacob. These are the things that we that that we you know we think about. We 
have gallow humor about, but but this is a real concern, but would also escalate. It's, it's another one of those things that would escalate this beyond the situation that it is right now. It's a line that no one wants to, to see cross. But if there are direct cyber attacks on the U.S., I mean, this this just goes to another stratosphere. Absolutely. I mean, c- cyber attacks are not nearly as destructive as nuclear weapons. But if you had state-on-state cyber attacks, I mean, Russia would kind of treat that the same way, and the U.S. government would treat that the same way, too. You have never had two major powers like that go at each other on a cyber level and, and really try and um, you know ruin each other's economies or degrade their military capacities that way. If, if there's a silver lining to all this, and it's not particularly silver, it's certainly not good for the Ukrainians. It's that despite all these sanctions and all the weapons that everybody is sending to Ukraine, no one in NATO and no one in the United States wants to deploy troops to defend the Ukrainians. And people probably don't want to hear about but that's just the simple fact. And for as long as that is true, and for as long as Russia has its forces massed there, and this matters more to them than to everybody else, this is probably a contained conflict because Russia's not trying to invade the entire world. It's trying to take Ukraine, and ultimately nobody's going to stick up for Ukraine. So there are scenarios in which this all kind of remains contained to Ukraine, and we're dealing really with some of these commodities, supply chain disruptions, the bifurcation of global finance, which are big enough on their own. I myself, I'm, I'm not losing too much sleep over you know nuclear forces being put on alert and cyber attacks here. I think right now, neither side wants that. It's much more for me, these commodity flows. Um, you were asking potential weaknesses. China's a big one. Anybody who's importing lots of energy, anybody who's importing lots of foodstuffs, those are countries that you're going to want to circle and watch very, very closely. And China's the biggest one with global implications. I'm so glad you mentioned that because when we were talking about who doesn't want $150 oil, China, anybody who imports oil, India, we have heard from so many countries, but notably we haven't heard much from India, from China, uh, from Saudi Arabia, from the UAE. How important is that? Will they be forced to, for lack, you know, for to, to oversimplify it, take a side? How do you see that playing out and how critical will that be? What's happening behind the scenes um, in terms of the, the U.S. and Europe talking to them? Yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to get Harry's views, but very quickly, mine. I, I sort of have a, have a variant view on the Chinese. I don't think they're happy about this at all. I don't think they wanted this at all. And I think from their perspective, if you try and put yourselves in the shoes of Beijing, Russia is just another European colonial power. It, they actually took part of China at the end of the 1800s, and now they're doing it to Ukraine. People like to make this Ukraine-Taiwan comparison. China recognizes Ukraine as an independent country. Russia doesn't. I mean, there's there's kind of no apples-to-apples comparison there. And China's also in the middle of dealing with a real estate property bubble and all and trying to get some rationality in its Ponzi scheme of, of an economy. So the timing couldn't be worse from China's perspective. India as well. Just a couple months ago, we were talking about electricity brownouts in India's power grid because they didn't have enough coal or they didn't have enough energy supplies to keep their supply chains going. So I think you're seeing all of those countries, they're very quiet. They're trying not to take sides. The Chinese are saying, yes, we'll import the Russian wheat, but we really want there to be a negotiated settlement. I think they're going to try as much as possible not to take sides. And if you're looking at the at the macro level geopolitically, that's the world we're heading to. We're heading to a world where there isn't one camp or even two camps as there was in the Cold War. It's multiple camps. It's a multipolar world with everybody balancing against each other. Yeah, on a, on a fine balance. Harry, Harry, weigh in. What, what are your thoughts on that? So, first of all, there's a great irony there, because if there's one world leader I've heard droning on constantly about multipolar, it happens to be Vladimir Putin, who has been lobbying for that for God knows how long. Um, secondly, so there's an interesting point you make about energy and oil and China. Um, 
so the the Iranians who are very good negotiators, very smart guys, um, may well be claiming that they could do increased production by two million barrels, but that's two, three, four. That really requires massive new investment. Um, I would argue there's not a single Iranian barrel of oil that does not hit the market. It hits the market, but it does not trade at global prices because of the sanctions. So only a small number of buyers who don't care about sanctions can buy that oil, and most of them are in China. So that Iranian oil is hitting the market right now, but it's hitting the market at a steep discount, probably 20%, sorry, hitting the off market at something like a 20% discount to Chinese buyers. If the Russians have no choice but to sell their oil cargoes to China too, China will get very cheap oil compared to the rest of the world. So it's a really good reason why the U.S. administration needs to strike a deal with the Iranians to get that market, that oil back on the global market and off of the back-channel market to China. Mm. Um, you know, I think Jacob's absolutely right. This this is a conflicted situation for the Chinese. Um, on the one hand, they they against being bullied by the Americans, and they believe they are being bullied by the Americans. On the other hand, they are very much against the idea that provinces should be able to leave and come back or be bullied by central government. They've got plenty of their own provinces, thank you very much. And there are lots of provinces like uh, the ones in the far west of China, which might well take the view that they'd be better off out of China. And so it's important for them to think of, you know, to present these decisions as harmonious and uh, and consensual. What they don't want to do is to take a side that make it look as if you can bully people into staying in your, your socialist union when it's not the case. So there are plenty of Uyghurs who might take a view on what's happening in Ukraine and argue that's already what's happening to them. Yeah. Um, question from uh, Bob on the RV side, Harry. Why do you think Vol has been so low? So... Uh, Vol is, is a gift, especially in uh, euro dollars and euro eyeball. So that short end rate vol is extraordinarily cheap and it's so much, it's a bargain compared to VIX or equity vol or even FX vol right now. Um, I, I've been buying it myself. And so that's probably a good disclosure, right? I, I'm talking my own book, so ignore me. But uh, I'm surprised by what, what I would say is, uh, so I, I think it's an odd thing. I wouldn't be so shocked if, and I think he's probably talking about equity vol more than anything else, that some of our screens are flattered by endeavors to support and provide liquidity by the central authority. We've, people have in the past have talked about the plunge protection team. Um, the idea is that there's an illegitimate intervention in markets by central government. Um, well, if there ever was a case for legitimate intervention, in markets by central government, it's when you're at war or you're an economic war with another block and other countries' lives are at stake. So for me, it wouldn't shock me if we have efforts to stabilize markets, which we don't see by the authorities. Um, and then secondly, there's a lot of liquidity in these markets. Um, there's so much liquidity that every dip gets bought. There's also, to me, that's a warning as well, because I, I think there's a transference of risk from institutional to retail, and that mm -hmm. worries me. But um, if you if that much liquidity in these markets, it's hard for it to break. And then if you have a little bit of supportive buying at the right time, you can support things. Um, I'm worried about oil. Yeah. 
I I mean, it, it, it is a fantastic point. And I think that you're from the very day this broke out, we had questions all along. Should I buy RSX? Should I be buying the dip? Should I? I mean, right now we have a question coming from and not to say this is what he meant by it, but a question from MC on YouTube. Do U.S. markets potentially benefit from a flight to safety from foreign markets here? Um, is, is it clear where to go for protection, Harry? If, if, you know, when everywhere else is horrible, in the U.S. will it's an ugly contest, not a beauty contest. But the U.S. will win because it's the least bad place on its own. As it is, I think there are really sound reasons to invest in the U.S. relative, but it's it's expensive, right? U.S. equities have outperformed European equities for near enough ten years, and the best U.S. equity indices have outperformed by three hundred percent. So U.S. tech has outperformed European equities by something like three times over 10 years. Um, that is not a cheap equity market. On the, so that's one side of things. And I, it gives me caution in, in getting too long of U.S. equities. I look for other trades because it's been outperforming for so long that this could easily be a capitulation move. Um, safe havens? Personally, I think bombed out markets are safe havens. So as far as I'm concerned, ex Restructured Argentinian debt is my preferred safe haven. I don't think it gives you an indication of where we are in this world. <laughs> right. I, I don't think other people would think I was I was rational, but as far as I'm concerned, after the destruction, that's that's probably a safer bet than many. Um, it's it's a tricky world. I'd say keep keep a certain amount of cash because you're going to see plenty of vol. Things are going to dip and dive, and you've got to be in, in a position to buy dips. Jacob, it's hard, you know when we when we see what's going on. I, I think that because it was so unexpected, and we're seeing so much from social media, there's quite a lot of journalists and media pumping video out from Ukraine. We see the ordinary citizens armed with. I mean, it's such a Davy and Goliath. Like you can't, you know, there's this sense of cheering for the Ukrainians, political aside, just because of the unevenness of the fight, but. What 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 ha- what happens or what's the risk with Putin if he is losing? What happens if he wins? I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk about him being isolated, the cost of the Russian people. How does this play out? It's hard to find whether he ultimately wins or whether he's backed into a corner. Both of those seem like extremely risky propositions. They are. Well, let me take the first part of what you said. Um, which is don't trust anything you see online right now. Everything is propaganda. Everything is being manufactured for you to feel or think a certain way. So I, I try to be very clinical and very apathetic when I'm talking about this. What you, what Ukraine is doing, the images that they are showing, it feels very heroic. It is designed to tug at your heartstrings. The Russians are trying to do the same thing, but they're losing the information battle right now. They will retool and they will try and figure out going forward. Um, I, I have to verify four or five different times before I'm willing to throw out a stat or say something that is happening right now. Scrutinize everything and make sure you're looking at the sources and asking, why is this piece of information coming out? That's the best thing you can do. In terms of Putin, we were joking before you know we kind of hit the, the record button or the live button here, um, that Putin knows what you're talking about better than anybody because he came to power on the back of the 1998 Russian financial crisis. And he knows exactly what it looks like when the ruble gets cut in half and when Moscow defaults on its debt and when there are lines at Russian banks and there's no cash to be had in them. Um, that, that's exactly why he's in power in the first place. So he's in a very, very difficult position. And there are two scenarios here. The first is he feels the pressure. He sees those protests in St. Petersburg. 
He sees the economy um, on all the measures he took the last eight years, not insulating Russia from the financial pain, and he looks for a face-saving measure. He's going to take Donetsk and Luhansk and say that he demilitarized Ukraine and come home, and maybe that'll be enough. That's one scenario. The second scenario is that he's committed this far. There's no way he can give up now, that he's playing the game to the end, and either he's going to ride this out and be the victorious Russian leader who reunited Ukraine as part of this new Russian federation slash empire, or he's going to get taken out because he he tried. Um, I personally- And what do you mean taken out? Taken out by who? Taken out by someone in the Soviet Union? Uh, in Russia itself, sure. I mean, there's an entire political system behind Putin, even though he projects himself as a dictator. So there are oligarchs behind the economy. There is a Russian military. Um, the reason that Putin is the way is in power is because he's the one that everybody agreed should be in power. He was the face that they were able to put on this to have stability. If the oligarchs and the military or some combination of the powers behind the throne decide that Putin isn't going to do it anymore, or on the flip side, if the Russian people have completely lost their faith in Putin. If the bargain for them is this guy was a dictator, but he was supposed to give us stability. Now we have a dictator with no stability. Screw this. Like, let's let's get to the streets and let's have a real revolution. Either one of those scenarios, whether it's grassroots or power behind the throne, can lead to him not having a very pleasant next few months. Harry. I think that's a, that's a, such a great point, Jacob. And it's, it's so seldom, I, I, I almost never hear it. You need a gang to run a mafia, right? You don't do it with one guy. Um, Putin is not, probably is a gang leader, but he's got a bunch of guys nastier and bigger than him with him, including Sechin and all those people. Um, if Putin, the easiest solution they have to, is, to, is to get rid of him, deject him, should it be the case, and maybe he's gone. I was in Russia in 98, um, and I saw what happened when that that place melted down. Then it, it was it was disastrous for people, absolute disastrous. My cleaner was a cardiologist. She was a terrible cleaner. Um, I can imagine she might have been a good cardiologist, but she really wasn't good at cleaning. Um, this it, the, what the Russians need to do is to find some node point they can can cut this and get out. Um, the obvious node point to me is the kettling of the Ukrainian military and in the Donbas. They're going to take 60,000 soldiers and they're going to have nowhere to go. They've already blown up their ammunition, their fuel dumps. They can't get out of there. Um, when they take that, he's going to try and force a negotiated peace. If he can't force a negotiated peace, he's in a lot of trouble. I don't think they bleed out, but I really do not think they want to take Ukraine. The idea that Ukrainians will be will warmly welcome themselves back into Russia you would need to, it's, it's absurd. It's never going to happen. You should at least see what the Shakhtar Donetsk fans, who are in the most Russian, pro-Russian area of, of Ukraine, say about Russians. They hate them. Yeah. Um, it, it's not going to, this is never going to integrate back into Russia easily. It will bleed him out. Yeah. The problem is when you've got this global cohesion and, you know, some countries that usually stay out of it moving in, and everyone on the same page that um, would presumably embolden the Ukrainians to, you know, to stick it out and to try and to try. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. 
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Last question for both of you, um, and this is from Bo. What are the and this is what everyone wants to know as we talk about these huge things and try to wrap our head around this. What are the chances that the black swan will be a result of a sanctions or or and their unintended consequences? I mean, I think this is this is the fear that's not really showing up in the market, but I think everyone has. You know, with all of this happening, are there unintended consequences that cause some major event that that we we really probably can't even wrap our heads around that? We don't know what it is, Harry um, and Jacob, but what's the risk of something like that now that we're at this point? You want to go which, first, Harry, or me? Sorry, I always say, like, which <laughs> yeah. one did I prefer? Harry, go first. That, that ball landed right between us. So um, <laughs> it's not really an, an observation. So, yes, there's going to be an unintended consequence. No, it's not easy to work out what it is in advance. But Jacob, I think, pointed the way uh, when he talked about defense spending. Um our defense spending in the U.S. is now about 3.1%. Um, European defense spending is way lower. We use defense spending in this way as a fiscal, a form of fiscal transfer that politicians can all agree on. Um, in the mid-1980s, 1985, defense spending was about 6%. It could double here. It could double in Europe. It could double globally. Um, when it doubles, where will it come from? If you had defense and consumption and investment, you really think they're going to reduce investment? I don't think so. I think our consumption levels will decline, so our living standards will decline, and that will be true across the Western world. That's an inevitable consequence of this happening. So, to answer your question in my usual lighthearted way, I fear for Nordstrom. Jacob? Yeah, so by definition, black swans are not predictable. You're not supposed to be, you're not supposed to be able to see them coming. So some of the worst-case scenarios that we've talked about here they're horrible. They keep me up at night. But you can see them coming. You can see how things escalate and spiral out of control with these sanctions or with an accidental, um, let's say the Poles are trying to arm the Ukrainians and the Russians hit the Poles on the wrong side of the border by accident. You can imagine all these scenarios, but that makes them not black swan. I would tell you that for me, the biggest geopolitical wildcard in all this and the one that I'm watching most closely is Turkey. Because Turkey is playing all sides of this conflict, has been playing all sides of this for a long time now. They get friendly sometimes with the Russians, but they're historical enemies there. They've been tight with the West from the Cold War and before, but now they're trying to be more independent. They're the ones that sit at the Bosporus. They're the ones that control Russian exports going out of the Black Sea. Is this a moment where they do they see the Iran nuclear deal and say, hey, we thought we were going to be the great power in the Middle East. Don't, don't give this money to the Iranians and give them new life back here. We want to be here. We're going to assert ourselves over here. Are they going to stoke the civil war in Libya and is oil... Uh, to Harry's point, going to go to 150 because the, Lib the Libyan civil war breaks out because the Turks are making noise there. I don't know what Turkey's thinking. I'm not even sure Erdogan knows what to do right this second, but they're at the fulcrum of all this because they're the ones that I can't quite figure out where their interests lie and what their imperative is going to be next. They're the unknown unknown that keeps me up the most at night in this entire thing. Fantastic. Harry and Jacob, thank you so much. Such great insight. So many things to think about um, and important for everyone to sort of take a step and try to understand this um, before you jump back in, especially if you're doing it um, with, you know, your savings, because these are really, really unprecedented times. So thanks to both of you. And thanks to all of you for watching and the great questions. We are back tomorrow. Tony Greer and Marco Papik will be here. So thanks so much. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, 
head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.